0: Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for book nerds. Learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great book sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Paris Review, Electric Literature, The Rumpus, the list goes on. You can advertise on the full network, or you can pick the sites you want and advertise piecemeal. It's very user friendly. For more information, check out litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
1: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle,
2: you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listy
0: just one person at just one time. everybody, here we go again. (laughs) This is it. This is other people. This is a good way to avoid people. This is how I figure out what to do. How's it going? What's happening out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I have a great show for you today. Juan F. Thompson is my guest. He is the son of the late Hunter S. Thompson, and he has written a memoir called Stories I Tell Myself. It's available now in hardcover from Knopf, and... It was was personally very exciting for me, and even a little bit emotional, to get a chance to sit down with Juan. Uh, His memoir is about his dad, his relationship with Hunter Thompson. I think it's fair to say that that's the central narrative of the book. And it's a vital part of the story that we haven't heard before. You know, as somebody who's read a lot about Hunter S. Thompson and a lot by Hunter S. Thompson over the years, you know, Juan's perspective is one that I was always wondering about. And uh, now we have it in the form of this fine book. So, uh, as I've said more than once on this program in the past, uh, Hunter S. Thompson is one of my all-time favorites. And I think he's uh, one of the great writers in American history. I think he's underrated. Often misperceived. Uh, He's certainly one of our funniest writers and one of our best political writers. Uh, I think he had a a really uncanny ability to synthesize uh, information the news and to see what was happening with clear eyes uh, despite all the drugs (laughs) which almost makes the feat uh like triply impressive and you know beyond that he's also a larger than life figure and i think he's one of the few people uh you know referred to in that way who actually live up to the billing he's also more human than that larger than lifeness. But I don't know, there's something kind of undeniably legendary about him in my mind. Uh, You know, at the same time, and you'll hear me talk about this with Juan in our conversation, I think the larger than life aspect to Hunter Thompson's existence often overshadows his talents as a writer and his achievements on the page. And I hope that this episode, if nothing else, serves to counteract that a little bit. Uh, I feel strongly that he needs to be read Maybe now more than ever. My favorite thing, uh, and I think I say this in the conversation, is his letters because they uh, they really bring out who he was as a person, and it you know it sort of makes sense considering that I do this podcast and talk to people who write books. I like to find out about the writer uh, as a person, and I feel like Hunter Thompson's letters, you know, in addition to doing that, are also just an incredible piece of writing. So, um. I think that rather than ramble on here, I'm just gonna read you a quote from a review of uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Hunter Thompson's book uh, about the uh, presidential race of 72, 1972. And this review was written by Kurt Vonnegut, another one of my favorites. And I think it captures the heart uh, of Hunter Thompson's life and writing pretty nicely. So this is Kurt Vonnegut writing about Hunter S. Thompson and uh, why Vonnegut feels that there should be a disease named after Hunter Thompson. (laughs) Thompson, if he is to be believed, has sampled the entire rainbow of legal and illegal drugs in heroic efforts to feel better than he does. As for the truth about his health, I've asked around about it. I'm told that he appears to be strong and rosy and steadily sane but we'll be doing what he wants us to do, I think if we consider his exterior a sort of Dorian Gray facade. Inwardly, he is being eaten alive by tin horn politicians. The disease is fatal. There is no known cure. The most we can do for the poor devil it seems to me is to name his disease in his honor. From this moment on Let all those who feel that Americans can be as easily led to beauty as to ugliness, to truth, as to public relations, to joy, as to bitterness, be said to be suffering from Hunter Thompson's disease. I don't have it this morning. It comes and goes. This morning, I don't have Hunter Thompson's disease. So with that, let's get started with today's episode. This is my conversation with Juan F. Thompson, and his memoir, one more time, is called "Stories I Tell Myself."
2: I mean, that, and that's really what motivated me to write the book in the first place. Is uh, after he died, there was a ton of media coverage, but the the coverage really focused on on that persona you, you described on the you know the wild and crazy, you know. Too many drugs Too much booze uh, You know like, like he's Like a party guy Right You know Hunter S. Thompson Was you know A famous party guy And Because he was that I mean he was He, he
0: loved to party Right Or he uh, At least he, he Well He was like the center of attention In any room that he was in And it felt
2: yeah, Festive or? I mean I mean I mean, He liked to have fun No doubt about that He liked to have fun And, and, and drugs are part of that um, But That's uh, That's not the reason that, you know, a 20-year-old today uh, uh, knows about Hunter Thompson um, or, you know, cares about him. Uh, I've been really impressed at uh, a bunch of the readings that I get very few questions about Hunter and drugs. Most of the questions, uh, um, or uh, sometimes I'll ask, you know, so what, what what's your favorite book? What do you, What is it about Hunter that you, you admire? And uh, it usually has to do with uh, politics, or his uh, uh, his inspiration to uh, live outside of the box, Um, or for some people it's uh, like uh, uh, his 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 social like like, like political activism. But rarely is it about the you know uh, hey let's take too many drugs and. And get crazy
0: well yeah i mean i think that there can be a tendency to want to romance that but that goes <laughs> yeah. away hopefully at some yes. point you, your person wises up and uh you know one of the things that you say in the book which really struck me because it clarified maybe something that i've felt about um your dad but never really was able to properly articulate is that and forgive me because i'm paraphrasing but you <laughs> said you know, he wasn't a philosopher he was a warrior and when i think of his work um he's one of the the funniest writers ever ever to do it in my opinion
2: and he writes rage incredibly well well you know um so sometime after he died and I don't remember if it was like Tom Wolfe or Wayne Buckley or something like that but somebody somebody uh uh described uh, Hunter as a satirist and and that that made perfect sense uh you know uh, that, that hunter used used uh you know humor and exaggeration all of that uh, uh to make a point to make a serious point and that's what satire is about it's not uh you know let's just uh you know have a good time and laugh here it's it's uh uh i've got a you know hunter had some very strong opinions about what was right and wrong and uh uh and he used he used those tools, and especially you know the the exaggeration to uh, to make a point.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, uh, language is a weapon, and like yes. uh, you know, woe unto anyone who's on the op- on the receiving end. I mean, if he if he felt uh, that there you know there had been an injustice, or somebody was deserving, he could take them apart, you know, and oh, and well, was yeah. a very effective advocate for his point of view. Let's put it that way.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, and he was very aware of the. Uh, of his power, uh, uh, his access to the media um, uh, was a was a uh, something that he could wield with you know great dexterity. Uh, this happened uh, pretty frequently in Aspen with uh, the local politics things. It's, uh, uh, he would he would use that power you know national media, local media to. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, uh, as, a, as a weapon to win.
0: Right, uh, well like I'm thinking of like when he ran for sheriff, the freak power ticket. Are you thinking of other things as well?
2: Uh, I'm thinking of uh, uh, sometime in the 90s, the, uh, the airport in Aspen wanted to lengthen the runway substantially to allow larger airplanes to land so you could have a direct flight from say LA um, Which they do now. They, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, so Hunter led a campaign to make sure that they could not extend the length of the runway, and uh, I, you know, it was a it was a media campaign, uh, and uh, uh, and it was very successful, uh, and uh, as a result, they 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 could not, you know, they they county commissioners, I guess. Refused to extend the runway because it was too unpopular, um, and uh, so that kept the big jets out until like a year after Hunter died, and then they extended the runway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: so uh, I want to ask one more question about persona, yeah, and uh, and then I want to ask a question, really, you know, regarding his uh, ability to mobilize the media. But when we talk about the the kind of caricatured. Uh, party guy version of hunter s thompson the fear and loathing in las vegas version you know um do you think that he ever felt trapped by that oh i'm sure he did i'm sure he did because Uh, there was an there had to be an expectation when he walks into a room or into any kind of public space everyone's like there he is things are going to be crazy you know what i'm saying like he's got to sort of be the life of the party or at least do something memorable i would imagine you would feel that pressure uh you know, but he also had a hand in cr- creating that myth, mm-hmm. you know, so he kind of created himself. In fact, more than m- just about anybody I can think of, he's a guy who really invented himself uh, on and off the page. He's very self-made.
2: Yes, and I think consciously, uh, I was uh, thinking about this recently, that if you look at some of some of the photographs of him uh, or pictures that he took, uh, or photos of him from, uh, you know, the, the early mid '60s, uh, when he was a, he was, you know, a pretty straight journalist, uh, and it occurred to me that it, he really, he was, he had created a persona then as well. It was of, you know, it was of the the serious young writer, you know, the the serious young journalist. Uh, and the way uh you know photographs he would take of uh you know uh, i remember that there's this one great picture of he's got a uh, uh it's a little writing desk and a typewriter and a pipe uh yeah <laughs> uh, uh outside overlooking uh the ocean in big sur you know and it's i mean it's a, uh it's a it's a still life you know yeah um uh, and uh I think he really, you know, he, he he cultivated that 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 persona, and then uh, Fear and Loathing came along, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know, you know, what his motivation was, but uh, it certainly worked for him for a while. You know, it gave him a lot more uh, uh, attention and visibility as a writer, which was. That's what he wanted. I, he wanted to be a great writer. Yeah, he did not want to be known as as a party guy. He wanted to be known as a writer. And he was he was very serious about it from a very young age. I think about the
0: and I could be misremembering, but there was an essay that he wrote, I want to say as a high school student, for like the Louisville was it Athenaeum? I'm going to be mispronouncing it. Yeah, the Literary so, Association, some yeah. sort of contest or something. And it was about it was a kind of a call to arms to his fellow young men and you know like yeah it was a it was a a remarkable piece of writing for somebody that age uh and then uh I think that he had you know he was in the military um after he um had left high school and spent some time in prison (laughs) yeah yeah and uh even I mean right away he was he was hard where was thinking about writing it was never not on his mind it seems like once he hit high school that was kind of what he was going to do yes Uh, and he had a, a great sense of intention
2: uh, absolutely i mean i think he was uh uh i think he was he was still immovable when he uh you know he'd type out uh uh you know parts of books he really liked uh, i remember coming across uh, in the archive uh, uh a local you know like a like a newspaper that that uh, that he published when he was like 12, you know, for his block.
0: As one does, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Publish a newspaper when yeah. you're 12. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, and, uh, you know, it's like one page long and, you know, handwritten or something. Um, but, you know, it started then. Um, and uh, it's so clear. We were talking earlier about the, the letters books. And it's so clear in those those early letters, which he started, you know, started saving them around 17 or 18.
0: Well, and I just want to clarify yeah. for listeners that there are several collections of your dad's letters out there, and, and before we came on the air, I was talking about how those are my favorite of his books. Uh, you get a real sense of the person, and I, I think you get a real sense of his talent. He was an incredible letter writer.
2: Yes, and uh, 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 I mean, there are a couple of remarkable things about it. First of all, he, he, was, he was making carbon copies of his letters when he was like 18, he knew. You know, Who does that? <laughs> I've got to save <laughs> these for my archive. Yeah, yeah. Uh and uh and, and he kept them uh you know, filed by by person and uh I mean, he was a he was a he was a nomad for, you know, years. Um uh, constantly moving around uh and yet he managed to keep those, you know, his letters files intact somehow. Somehow. Um and uh, I, I'm trying to remember if, if Hunter mentioned this or just my theory, but that that I think for for Hunter writing letters was uh, you know when he was younger that was like practice that was like that, a warm up that was writing practice yeah you know if he if he wasn't writing an article well he was writing letters and, and you're right I mean they're um, they're they're beautifully done um, and some of them are you know very serious and some of them are really funny you know some of the letters. Uh, he would write letters to bill collectors, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know uh, trying to convince them that he was completely insane, and there was no <laughs> point in trying to pursue this debt because uh you know and they' they're you know they're great, or some of his letters applying for jobs in newspapers uh you know basically saying uh, uh I'm a great writer, uh I don't follow any rules, yeah, uh, and if this is a problem for you um you know." Never mind. <laughs>
0: who's, who's the writer? And uh, he went, He went on to win like a Pulitzer. But he was in Puerto Rico, and he was a newspaper editor who I want to say uh, gave Hunter his job down there.
2: Yeah, uh, blanking on the last name. Um, yeah, but he, uh, uh, he wrote Ironweed. Yes, William. Okay. We'll figure it out. Yeah,
0: people can Google. But the point is that that initial exchange, uh, those letters, incredible gumption. <laughs> Like they were going after each other, I yeah. Mean, you know, and Hunter had balls. I mean, you know, right away, just going in there, and I forget exactly what he said, but I remember being like,
2: "Damn, he's not afraid," <laughs> you know. Like, no, I, 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 uh, I mean, he. Uh, I, I think that was, that was, that was just how he was wired. You know, I, I don't think he decided. Well, I think this would be an effective job hunting strategy. Uh, uh, that's how he was wired was to, uh, to. Uh, resist authority, especially, um, you know, when he was uh, uh, he was probably a better writer uh, than you know most of the editors up. Uh, William w- Kennedy. William Kennedy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he was a better writer, and he was no doubt smarter. Uh, he was brilliant, and you know, usually the smartest guy in the room. So how could he take seriously, uh, you know, applying for a, a job with a manager who he had no respect for? Um, and that exchange with William Kennedy is, uh, you know, he, he basically just lays it out. there. It's like, all right, you know, uh, here's where I'm coming from. <laughs> and, you know, and if you don't like that, uh, you know, I'll go, I'll go right for somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and fortunately, William Kennedy was uh, intrigued, yes. you know, and and, and not intimidated. Uh, and you're right. It's a great exchange between two really sharp uh, and, uh, uh, you know, powerful guys uh, on the same line w- with a
0: similar sense of humor yes you, thank goodness you know because you have to sort of you'd have to sort of meet <laughs> each other there if you're gonna go on to become friends which they did yes and I would say this is a, a good moment to to talk about um, you know what you were uh, alluding to earlier with regard to Hunter's ability to mobilize the media that is an effect uh, of his ability to cultivate people he this guy had in, uh, an incredible circle of friends. Yes. Who were so loyal to him, loved him so much. Yes. Everybody should be so lucky to have that many good friends. Yes. And also friends in high places. (laughs) He was amazing that way.
2: And, uh, I mean, he was, you know, that was not accidental. Um, I think it was, uh, I mean, first of all, one of the things I, I really, you know, admire about him is that, uh, uh, uh what he respected was uh you know uh, uh intelligence um uh, yeah i'd say I- I- intelligence so uh he didn't care about you know uh you know social social status uh you know your job title how much money you made he didn't care at all about that uh if you were smart and articulate you had a place you know in the kitchen or in you know on his life, and if if you weren't, it didn't matter who you were. He had no time for you. Um, and uh, uh, so, I think as resu- as a result, he you know, he had this really interesting uh, collection of uh, friends. I think uh, he had you know he would correspond with Pat Buchanan of all people. Yeah, you know,
0: and everyone from Ed Bradley <laughs> to Pat Buchanan, John Kerry. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. You know. Uh, to people in Hollywood, he knew everybody. It seemed.
2: Yeah, and uh, like like you know, uh, Pat Cadell. I was talking to someone um, yesterday. There was su- 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 surprised that that you know Hunter, the you know consummate outsider, uh, w- was really good friends with uh, uh, Doris and Dick Goodwin. You know, or uh, you know, very establishment figures. Um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, yes. the, the historian. yeah. Yes. Um, and her husband, Richard Goodwin, who was, I think, uh, JFK's press secretary. Okay, yeah. Um, and uh, or speechwriter. Uh, and that's something I, I just really admired is that he would, uh, as long as uh, like Pat Buchanan. I mean, uh, apparently a smart guy. You know, they totally disagreed on our politics, but you know, they had interesting exchanges. Um, well, and I should say too that like having those kinds of friendships, you know. It's
0: impossible to, I think, sustain relationships like that or even form them in the first place if, as we were talking about earlier, you know, the, the party guy element of a person's persona
2: predominates. That's not what was happening, you know, clearly. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, 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 he and, you know, Ed Bradley did not bond over, you know, uh, a game of quarters right? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> beer, pong, beer pong and cocaine. <laughs> no, no, no. They, you know, they, uh, they, they had a lot of respect for each other as, uh, you know, as journalists and as men. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. That, that's, that was the foundation of, of those, those enduring friendships. I remember, um, the last, I don't know, five years, something like that. At one point, uh, Hunter pointed to his Rolodex, you know, cause he was all paper. He didn't, yeah, he, yeah. he didn't use computer <laughs> at all. Uh, and he pointed to his relatives and said, "That is the most valuable thing in this house." Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, yes, he, he cultivated these friendships. I mean, he had these friendships, you know, and he sort of grew up organically. But he also understood that uh, uh, maintaining that network was uh, was a key to him, you know, to his own effectiveness. Yeah, so he was a very, uh, you know, people. I, I think a lot of people think of him as. Again, back to this—you know—the the caricature of the—you know—you uh, know—too many drugs. Um, but uh, I mean, it was really rare to see Hunter like out of control. Uh, he was—he was so smart and so focused on, uh, you know, what did he want to accomplish? Uh, I mean, he had this—I this, uh, think I mentioned in the book—it was a, he had a piece of paper up on the. Um, on a, this lamp next to where he sat at the uh, you know, kitchen counter, and it said, uh, "What is the desired effect?" Uh, and I think that was that was uh, in his mind constantly. You know, what uh, what is it I'm trying to accomplish here, and how can I best do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, like uh, we talk. It seems like all of a piece to me, but we talk about like uh, how much. And how much success he had at creating himself on and off the page i also think of him as somebody who had an uncanny sense of timing and an uncanny sense of place you know and you see this a lot of times with uh, great artists or people you know journalists whoever it is who happens to have a big cultural impact they tend to be in the right place at the right time and i think about him being in san francisco in the 60s being at the acid tests mm-hmm. um, doing the hell's angels book yeah he had his finger right there on the pulse and then even being an aspen because he's famous as an outsider but he happened to be living kind of off the grid at a nexus of of it's where everybody who made an impact on the culture vacation <laughs> they sort of came to him it was a perfect spot you know in its yeah. way because aspen allowed him to sort of have his own parcel and have his space. Yeah.
2: Um but it also put him in contact still. Yes. I yeah, I, th- I think it, it it I don't think he he planned that, you know, Assam was not was not that that nexus when he first moved there, but I think uh you know, we're, we're talking about. It. I mean, he was he was all about being a writer and and um so he would go wherever wherever he needed to go, you know, to uh, to get the story or get the, yeah, I got the story. Uh, so he was constantly moving. I mean, he spent you now like a year traveling around South America, um, writing, uh, articles for, uh, you know, as a freelancer, because that's what he, that, that's what he had to do. And that's what he wanted to do. And he was also, uh, and that was, that was deliberate because he was, uh, at the time, um, uh, South America, the, uh, so the U.S. relationship with South America was a very big topic, um, you know, in, uh, with the government. Uh, and this was research for him was to go down there and spend a bunch of time and figure out, you know, what's really going on and be able to, to speak intelligently on the subject. Um, you know, so it wasn't just, hey, I think I'll go one around South America.
0: Yeah, but do you think it had, a, it had a big
2: impact on the kind of the formation of his politics? Uh, no, no. I, th- I think I think that was, um, I think it was really the 68 convention that did that. You know, uh, and I should say we yeah. were
0: recording this the day after the Donald Trump shit show in Chicago, which makes me think of your dad, because the 68 convention and what happened in Chicago with the uh, police brutality... Was one of the signature events
2: of his life. It was. It. uh, I think that's really what you'd say. You know, radicalized or or, or, uh, uh, that politicized him. I mean, you can see from his letters that uh, you know he'd have these long arguments between you know with 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 a friend about you know uh, you know politics and um, political systems and philosophies, but it was all kind of. uh, just for interesting conversation until the convention, um, uh, and uh, you know he was out there in the street and he got tear gassed and um, I don't think he actually got hit, but he he was sure uh, he was he was he was afraid of it, you know. And he, he was, was seeing he cops. was seeing
0: people get hit.
2: Yeah, yeah. And he went out there with a motorcycle helmet and it was. I mean, he was he was traumatized really.
0: No, he he, he wept, which yeah. is not something when you think of Hunter Thompson, you think of him doing no. But in the aftermath of that. Uh, i remember it might have been from the letters he would try to talk
2: about it and he would he had ptsd I mean, he was traumatized it it, it was and it, it was i think uh it, it was such a, a, a i mean he was such an idealist um and uh i think that was really the final well i will say it, not the blow to his idealism but the final uh, something has got to be done and i've got to do something here um and uh, uh I think that his his response was uh, uh, was the the sheriff's campaign in Aspen. It was basically uh you know th- this shit must cease um and how can we do that? Well, how about these uh you know we've got millions of uh young voters who are not registered to vote and are not voting, and if we can get them out the vote, you know we can actually change the direction of the country and the uh, uh running for sheriff in in Aspen was was an experiment to see, hey can we can we get these uh you know these these disillusioned people young people to go out there and, and register and vote and uh
0: he almost won
2: and he almost won and uh you know the opposition the uh sort of old guard really conservative uh uh sheriff uh, i mean they 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 freaked out yeah they they <laughs> He put a he put a fright into him. Oh, he did. I mean, I mean, they really thought this was uh, pretty much the end of the world. You know, this was this was Satan. This was Satan himself coming well, down to uh, you know to, to, to you know take over their town.
0: Well, if you read his platform for the Freak Power ticket, I mean, what he planned to do. What were they going to uh, rename Aspen Fat City? it was brilliant. There was going to be no brilliant. no cars. The whole thing was going to be bulldozed, and there was going to be just a public park with bikes. I mean, it was like yeah. It, you read it, and you are like, this sounds fantastic. Oh, <laughs> and,
2: and and it wasn't a real platform. It was it was, uh, I mean, the whole point was to get people's attention, uh, and say you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna really change shit up here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, and Honor was using his you know his 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 power as a writer to, uh, you know, inspire people. I mean, the, you know, one of the ones I remember is uh, uh, all dishonest drug dealers will be put in stocks on the, <laughs> you know, front yard of the courthouse. Dishonest drug dealers. <laughs> the honest ones, you know, that's okay. Uh, uh, and the whole uh, the idea of renaming Aspen Fat City, I mean, my God, if he'd been able to get away with that, uh, Aspen would be a... It wouldn't be Aspen. It would still be a small, you know, a a funky small town. Right.
0: Well, I remember seeing, I think it was a documentary, and uh, your mother was on camera, and she said that that moment in his life when he was running for sheriff was kind of a cross-section of all of his interests. It was where his, you know, his writing life and his activism, Mm -hmm. uh, his charisma, Mm-hmm. His sense of justice, you know, like all mm-hmm. the all the best of Hunter sort mm-hmm. of like actualized itself in that moment. It was one of the high points, in, in her opinion, of, of his life.
2: I think that's I, I, I think that's true. When it, when it all came together, and there was a sense of possibility of what what might be possible here. Not just an Aspen, but this was a you know this was a this was a a, a lab test to see could this be done on a larger scale. Um, and even though he lost. Uh, as you say, I mean it wasn't by much. It was like a like a hundred votes, two hundred votes. It wasn't much. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, there's this great photo. I think it's in the book of uh, uh, he pulled together all these all these journalists and uh, political consultants that he had met through the seventy two campaign, and they met in Reno to uh, in a hotel room to sort of strategize. Uh, you know. Uh, how can we do this nationally? Uh, and unfortunately, nothing nothing came of that. Uh, and at some point, I think he must have. I don't know when it was that he that he he gave up on that possibility of of, of politically motivated you know, politically um, uh, engaging people, and I uh, you know retreating to more uh, I don't know retreating, but. Acknowledging that 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 uh, he was not a politician, right? Uh, he was a writer, right? Um, but there was a point at which he actually considered running for Senate, you know, for for Colorado's uh, state Senate. Yeah, uh, uh, which would have been really really interesting. That would have been an interesting <laughs> campaign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so
0: uh, I want to talk about you because this book, you know, I in terms of uh, your dad's life. I mean, I've obviously been aware of you for a long time because I, you know, he writes about you in his letters. He writes about you and um, been aware of your mother, Sandy, seen her on camera uh, in documentaries and so forth. But one of the reasons I was so excited to read your book is because I've never really heard from you at length and you're sort of a piece of the story that we haven't gotten yet. And, you know, I think at first blush, someone might think like son of Hunter Thompson and you would, you know, someone might say, well, he's going to be a wild man. <laughs> Spawn of Hunter <laughs> uh, you're, You strike me as the opposite of that And that you know, you know yeah. Then you start to think about it And you're like I guess that kind of makes sense You know that uh, Kids are often Not carbon copies of their parents That seems obvious uh, So childhood for you I would say n- Not normal by like, Not conventional um, Difficult
2: Uh yeah, you know, interesting interesting thing about writing this book was uh by the end of the process one of the things that I I, I realized was that um a lot of things about my childhood were were uh not not that unique. Um uh, un, uh unconventional and uh, you know certainly Hunter being a you know Famous writer was was unusual, but but a lot of the dynamics, uh, what made it, uh, you know, difficult, um, uh, were not unique to Hunter. You know, this is I thought, I thought, well, you know what, uh, 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 I had it better than some and worse than others. You know, right. uh, and uh, you know my experience was not not particularly unique. Um, uh, I mean, he was a. He was a, a father, he was a man and a father of his generation. He was, you know, born in the late 30s. So, uh, uh, he and my mom had very traditional, sort of, you know, role definition where, uh, my mom's job was to take care of him, take care of me, uh, take care of the household, you know, uh, laundry, shopping, cleaning, all that stuff that, you know, women's work. Uh, and, uh, Uh, And he would uh, make the money and otherwise do pretty much what he pleased. So I didn't see a lot of him. Uh, He
0: also kept very strange. I mean, kept night hours. He's famous for being nocturnal.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. So I'd I'd get home from school, you know, and around 4 or 5 o'clock, he'd get up, wake up, and uh, he'd have breakfast while I was having dinner. And, (laughs) uh, you know, and then he'd... uh, uh, I'd go to bed and he'd go out on the, you know, go out in the town, you know, go and see friends, uh, and then, uh, you know, go to sleep, I don't know, 6 in the morning or something like that, and then I'd see him the next night. So, he just wasn't around much. Uh, and then, around 10 or 11, my, you know, my, my, my parents' marriage had been Gradually falling apart, but it became really uh, visible to me around 10, 11 when they started having these just these just awful, awful fights in the middle of the night. Um, and uh, I won't even I, I think I do a better job of describing the book than I could possibly do justice here. But uh, they were they were just terrible things to listen to and, and, and watch. Uh, and as a result of those, I really, I really, I'd say, I, I really came to hate my father uh, because of just what a bastard he was to my mom.
0: You know, uh, I can't, I can't imagine he would be a fun person to argue with.
2: Oh my God! Uh, no, and so back to our uh, uh, point you made earlier that uh, uh, he was, he was a warrior, not a philosopher. So he was not interested in. Uh, you know arguing to arrive at the truth he was interested in winning um, and uh, and he was he was very good at it uh, and, uh, and his you know words were his primary tool uh, but reason was not that was not his his mechanism it was you know whatever it took to take down your opponent like you know sort of like verbal you know, worldwide wrest or like you know, no holds barred wrestling.
1: Yeah,
2: you know, <laughs> you, know, you got to kick the guy in the crotch and like you know, MMA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you know, punch him in the neck. That's yeah. what it takes. Well, that's what you do. That's what you do. Yeah.
0: So you and you write about this pretty unsparingly. Uh, it's a complicated relationship, and for a long time, uh, or there were periods of of time that spanned years where you weren't in great touch. And yet, he always he was always kind of. I, I feel like this is another aspect of him, is that people could maybe have the sense like, oh, he doesn't care, or he's not with it, or he's not paying attention. He's he was sort of always paying attention, and he was always <laughs> in his way, orchestrating and looking out for, making calls, checking in. You would yeah. you didn't know about this a lot of times until yeah. after the fact, but that was that was a. Something he did in a lot of facets of his life, and especially I think with you,
2: yeah, and that took a long time to, to realize that though uh, well
0: he I mean, wasn't telling you <laughs> no
2: no, and uh it, and and he never did uh you know it was it was either through other people or through letters uh, I mean some of the stuff I didn't realize till after after he died, and I was going through uh you know, his archive and came across letters where he was uh, you know either uh, asking friends for, for money to get money for, you know, my college or, uh, you know, bitching at his accountant, you know, <laughs> trying to find some way to squeeze more money out of, you know, somewhere, but, uh, he was really clear. He didn't want me to know about it because he didn't, he didn't want me to, to, to worry, uh, you know, about where the money was going to come from. Uh, I mean, I didn't see that till after he was dead, you know? Right. Um.
0: Just goes to show, too, because this was, you know, what, the 80s? This is post-Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just for writers listening, because a lot of my audience is, uh, you know, uh, falls into that camp, it's, uh, you know, the the struggle for money doesn't usually go away.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was a battle throughout his life. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and he was, I mean, he was singularly bad at managing money.
0: Uh, As writers often are. That's why we're not accountants.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh... uh, uh and i think it's a, it's a testament to his you know his ability as a writer that he was able to uh you know survive his entire life as a uh, as a freelance writer
0: that's a tough road
2: yeah it's a damn tough road uh and it's a good thing because uh there is no way Hunter could ever have worked for anybody else. No. He, he could never have worked, you know, a, 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 for, for a manager in a straight job. He, he just couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. Um, you know, I thought that. Uh, I mean, he was he was driven, he was brilliant, and he was gifted. But he also kind of showed up at the right time, um, when you know Rolling Stone magazine was around. You know, it was just. It just started, and there was a there was a, a willingness to, uh, you know, take a risk on this on, on new forms of journalism. I mean, if he had been writing 20 years earlier, who would have published his stuff? Yeah, nobody.
0: The timing was right. Yeah. Then I think the Rolling Stone uh, gig came after he had published the Kentucky Kentucky Derby piece in Scanlan's. I can't remember. I want to say it did, or like I want to say Jan Winter was familiar with Hunter's work either via the the, the uh, who was he writing for? Colliers. I could be misremembering these magazines of yore, but um, Observer or probably. the Nation. You know, he Nation. Yeah, he had yeah. a byline that people yes. were aware of by the time he got to Rolling Stone. Yes, and then showed up kind of right at the right time because Rolling Stone was really ascendant, and it was the perfect match.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Jan had the you know. it's was the vision and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the willingness to take a risk on this guy. Uh, and it was a, a tumultuous relationship, but obviously a very, you know, mutually beneficial one. They were close. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like they had a lot of affection. I mean, I know yes. they had their, their problems through the years, but uh, there's a lot of affection there. Yes. And the kind of editorial writerly relationship that in many ways I think most writers uh, dream of you know somebody that gives you a home somebody that really believes in you somebody that nurtures you somebody that can edit you yeah uh you know yeah. like and understands your voice and how to how to bring it to its highest heights and all that kind of stuff so you know he found that home there and i think he you know like you say it was mutually beneficial i think Hunter's talent uh in that magazine uh is unsurpassed and, and had a lot to do with its success yes you know yes
2: uh and Jan was also willing to uh, uh you know uh, keep taking chances on Hunter, even when uh, you know, uh, say the uh, Hunter went to uh, cover the um, uh, Muhammad Ali George Foreman fight, the Rumble in the Jungle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and this was the days when uh, you know a magazine would actually pay expenses. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I can't imagine how many tens of thousands of dollars Hunter you know, <laughs> blew on that, and no story. He, you know, things didn't no go well on that
0: trip. It. I like I've read and i forgive me because I can't I I've read so much I can't remember where I read it. But that trip uh did not go well. It
2: was it was a it was a bad it was a low point for him. And I don't know the details, but I mean he didn't even go to the fight. Yeah. Um uh, and uh you know, he, he he came back and uh, you know, Stedman was with him, of course, you know, Stedman
0: Ralph Steadman, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, sorry. the, the yeah. artist who uh, illustrated *Fear and Loathing*. Yeah, so it's sort of like the, I don't know, it, the, the the two are really you can't think of one without the other. He sort of, uh, you know, cr- cr- you know, provides a visual context for, uh, that that
2: imaginative world. Yes, yeah, they were they they really understood each other. Uh, uh you know, and then after all, for whatever reason, Hunter just could not. He could not produce, you know, the, the actual finished article, and uh, uh, and yet Jan you know, was willing to, you know, try again. I mean, a lot of writers, uh, you know, you, you you do something like that. I mean, you are blacklisted, you, right? You are you are not going to write again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, but you take you take the good with the bad. Yes, um, and you know that's the thing too about your book is that it doesn't shy away from the bad. And I think one of the temptations for people who might be on the outside looking in or considering um, you know, Hunter's life and work and the mythology that surrounds it, you know, we, we love our rock stars. And if ever anybody was a literary rock star, it was him. And we like to believe that they can live these lives without consequences. And especially when it comes to substance, you know. Mm-hmm. And he did have an incredible constitution. Uh, yeah. people who are able to live like that, they have to, it's, it's a physical gift. If I tried to live like that for a, you know, two days, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be yeah. fetal. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be done. You know, <laughs> he could somehow do it, but, um, that's the situation of diminishing returns. It does catch up with everybody. Nobody can, can live like that without there being consequences. Yes. Uh, relationally, you know, with your family, with your, yep. your wife, your son, your friends. I mean, it takes its toll. Yep but also physically and emotionally and spiritually, all that kind of stuff. And you witness that.
2: Yeah. And it's uh, I mean, I tell you, there's one thing, uh, you know, there are people out there who, uh, you know, think, uh, are, are focused on, uh, you know, Hunter is the party animal. I definitely refer to the, you know, refer them to the, the, you know, uh, uh, how this story ends, you know, that, uh, uh, it was uh, I mean, there, there were several reasons why he chose to kill himself but, but a, a big one was uh, that his body was, was really falling apart um, and it was because of you know 55 years of uh, you know heavy alcohol uh, use and the, the, the funny thing about Hunter is that he was never a drunk uh, but he was an alcoholic in the sense that he he was physically dependent on alcohol and he just had to have he had to have it in his system all the time
0: How much was he drinking?
2: Were you talking about like a, close to a fifth a day? Or Not a fifth, yeah, yeah. Of or yeah, yeah Yeah, And yeah. some cocaine um, Yeah, I'd say those were his two they were his maintenance drugs Right um, You know, he had to have the booze um, otherwise he'd go into withdrawal uh, and I think the cocaine helped him uh, yeah, probably you know more effective than coffee. You know, to, to, to try you know to keep, keep him awake. You know,
0: yeah. to, to to balance the. If it's all booze, you're just going to be kind of a wash. You need, yeah, yeah, you're you are fall need, asleep in the middle of the day. You right. Know? right. <laughs> uh, which he did. In, which he did. He did sleep in the
2: middle of the day. Well, uh, I, 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 so, I mean, those two drugs are you know the booze and the cocaine were really they were just maintenance drugs to to help him function. Just just function. Mm-hmm. They were not for fun. Uh, they were not, you know, to, to to get crazy. They were just to, to help him function. Um, and by the, you know, last probably, you know, five years of his life, the alcohol was was really taking its toll, just physically. And I, I think it's, you know, I didn't realize this until um, around the end of his life that that uh, alcohol is like a it's it's a poison it's just a it's a a poison which gradually um you know causes your your body and and particularly your nervous system to start deteriorating
0: yeah um when people get wet what do they call it, wet brain yeah you know in elderly you know people who get up a, into a, their advanced years and they've been drinking their whole lives like the mind goes
2: it does and and it, i mean it, it goes physically uh and, 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 not just the, the, you know, the brain, but the, uh, you know, the nervous system so that it becomes hard to walk. It becomes, you know, you just, your body, your your nervous system is, you know, uh, starting to shut down. And he knew that. It, yes. Yes. And, and it's not reversible. It's not like, you know, you stop drinking and, you know, take some vitamins and it all comes back. <laughs> Green juice. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, 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 it's, you know, it, it it's permanent and it's irreversible, uh, and uh, uh he was not willing to to continue to live to live like that uh it would know.
0: have it would have mean I've lost friends to suicide, and I always say it's the worst kind of grief because there's so much mystery in it um you know i I have friends who in their in their youth like twenty years old uh took you know take a, you know uh, his own life and it was a big shock and it was a bit it remains mysterious in some respects um with your father's suicide, it, it strikes me as a unique case where I can understand it. And, it, it, and it's yeah. an extension of the, the hunter control.
1: Every aspect, yes. I mean, he, he planned yes. his own
0: funeral decades in advance. This elaborate thing with a rocket and you know the ashes uh, being shot up over yeah. Woody Creek and um, Al Farm and it's like, I don't know, he had an unusual ability to control his own scene,
2: <laughs> yes, and I, I mean I, I think you you, you you hit it exactly it was uh the way he died was completely consistent with how he he lived his life. Uh, there was no way that this guy who had lived on his own terms you know from you know early childhood uh was going to at the end of his life surrender control and you know go into a nursing home and be you know wheeled around like you know a you know
0: the infantilization that happens yeah, to people yeah, in old age.
2: Yeah, and that would have been completely unacceptable to him. He
0: would have been hell on wheels in a nursing
2: home. <laughs> uh, yeah, He, you know, and he would have been powerless and he would have been utterly miserable. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is one thing that I, uh, you know, I'm grateful for is that I think I, I understand why he did it and, and it makes sense, you know. Uh, and... Uh, he had not made a secret that when he did die, it was going to be suicide. Um, he told you this? Yeah, and he had told uh, many people, you know, for decades um, that, uh, you know, that, that that's how it was going to go. Um, so I just expected that. Now, when he actually did it, you know, I sure as hell wasn't expecting To happen that weekend, it was like, well, you know, okay, that'll, you know, someday, someday he'll, you know, he'll, you know, commit suicide. But, but it was it was abstract. Um, So why that weekend? um, So obviously, you know, he did not tell me, all right, son, uh, you know, this weekend I'm going to kill myself. (laughs) So right. uh, uh, So this is all speculation, but um uh, uh, myself my wife and my at the time six-year-old son were, were up there uh, and we we had developed a really good relationship uh, you know we'd go up spend a weekend uh, and uh, uh, you know we'd really kind of developed a way to 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 spend time together and um, because that it. is a
0: part of this story is yeah. that the relationship comes full circle. I mean, people can read the book, but that's a really touching aspect of it all. Is that for all of the difficulties that you had as a child with your father, uh, there was always love there, and you guys found your way back to one another before it was too late.
2: Thank God. Yeah. And uh, and I think I think he wanted to. I think he'd probably been, you know, uh, contemplating suicide for a long time uh he had his uh you know he, he his body was deteriorating um he didn't have the mobility uh that was not going to change uh it had become increasingly difficult for him to write uh probably also as a result of the alcohol and the you know cocaine he just he just couldn't focus he couldn't concentrate uh so he lost right there you know Two of the things that were most important to him, you know, his freedom uh, and his ability to write, were uh, were gone, and they were not coming back. Uh, and uh, you know, his uh, he'd gotten married recently, and that was that was not going well. Uh, and I think he decided, uh, you know, I'm I'm done. I'm done. I'm not going to keep fighting here. And I think that he chose that weekend because he felt he felt loved. Uh, and he wanted to go out, surrounded by people who loved him. Um, and you know, was that selfish? Um, I don't. I, just speaking for myself, I, I don't think so. Um, and I'm I'm okay with it because. Uh, I know what happened, you know. There's no like you mentioned the mystery, you know. In this case, all right, you know, I, I was there. I, you know, there was no, uh, there was no mystery about, uh, you know, what what led up to that. Yeah, I and, was going
0: to say you were there that weekend. You were also there with him throughout uh, his health ordeals at the end of his life, surgeries, yeah. hospitalizations. I mean, you had witnessed the physical deterioration firsthand. So. That's that's a big part of the equation.
2: Yeah, and he had told me that you know that that weekend that you know that uh, uh, you know uh, I'm no longer mobile. Uh, and uh, so I know what happened, um, and I was also I'm glad that I was able to be there. Uh, you know, to find his body and to make sure that you know, his body was handled with, you know, with respect.
0: You, you went out into the, into the yard and shot, um, a rifle. Like, what was it? A 22 or I don't Uh, know. I don't know guns, but you, you shot, uh,
2: well, how many shots? Um, yeah. And, and that was, that was, I mean, I hadn't planned on that and I don't know why I did it. It just seemed like, it just seemed important to do like, a like a, you know, 21 gun salute kind of, I just, uh, uh, uh it was a 12 a gauge shotgun that he liked to use for that was sort of a shotgun of choice and so i i loaded it up with like seven shells and went in the yard and just you know shot seven times in the air um
0: as one can do when you live in woody creek colorado <laughs> yes
2: yes yes and, and nobody uh, you know it's like, oh that's that's you know that's hunter shooting yeah right you know? no, nobody... like, oh, no. <laughs> what no explosions <laughs> you
0: know Yeah, yeah. Well, and guns were a big part of his life. They were a big part of what bonded the two of you together. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm a person don't have guns make me nervous. Didn't grow up around them. Part of the reason why they make me nervous. Don't know. You know, am I I operating this right? I've shot them a couple times. You know, but very very unsettling experience. But um, your book, maybe more than anything I've ever read, made me understand how people can get into guns and can appreciate them as a work of art, uh, as a machine of precision, as a ritual between father and son, as a a lingua franca, something that you guys can talk about. It's sort of like sports. Yes. It's like my dad and I talking about football and some weird, you know, we're fluent in it. We can go back and forth about it. It gives Mm -hmm. us a common ground. Mm -hmm.
2: And that's what guns were for you two. Yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, uh, because, uh, you know, I was not, not a big sports fan. Uh, I would watch football when I was up there uh, on weekends. I'd watch football with Hunter. So I, he I loved learned, football. Oh, he loved football. Yeah, he did. Yes. Uh, uh, and I learned enough to be sort of conversant um, and to understand, you know, some of the strategies, so I could at least say something, you know, m- moderately intelligent. <laughs> right. um, you know, but I didn't. I mean, I mean, he had a mastery of you know all the fine points and you know all the players and there's their stats and all that stuff um, so that really that was that really wasn't a uh, that was not going to be that 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 sort of shared language um, but uh, you're absolutely right it was you know it, it was that, that appreciation for guns um, and I, you know for, for, for both of us it was uh, it was Guns were not about. It. It was not about using them against people, you know. That was never. That was. That was never the. Uh, the thing about guns. Nor was it about. Um, you know, self defense. uh... It was just the, the, the pleasure, the, the 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 appreciation for the, you know, for for the machine, and the. Uh, the sort of visceral pleasure of uh. Of, of shooting you know and, and i mean it's nothing quite like shooting a really big handgun um
0: especially it, when your target is uh like a whatever dynamite packed oh, yes 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 <laughs> what, what were the bombs made out of like there was a very specific uh, setup recipe, yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah it was uh uh it was uh, like a like a gallon can of gasoline okay um and in Don't front try of, this at home kids <laughs> yeah yeah uh in front of that was a propane canister, like a small camping propane canister, um, and then taped to that was a, a like a small exploding target. And so the <clears throat> the theory was that uh, uh, um, you would shoot, uh, you had to hit this this exploding target dead center uh, using double um, uh, O buck, which is like these basically like. Big BBs are like, like um, uh, ball bearings, kind of. Sure. Um, so there's not very many of them in there, and they're big. And as long as you hit that that target dead center, it sets off the you know a little uh, little explosion uh, that punches through the propane canister and uh, uh, and then into the gasoline, and then you so you've got this combination of the the propane and the gasoline, you know thrown up into the air and catching on fire and it just uh made for a very impressive (laughs) exquisite (laughs) yeah yeah it was beautiful and and, you know and and as you say you know we're out in the country uh he can do this in his front yard you know and uh uh you know nobody's uh you know no one's gonna call the police uh and that's something that, that he valued so highly was that that freedom to do Ain't able to do that stuff in his front yard. And he enough. had a libertarian streak for yeah, sure. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, as yeah.
0: as do a lot of people up in the Rocky Mountains, in the yeah. Mountain West. I feel like that's kind of a, a familiar strain up there. Live and let live.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. As long as I'm not, you know, as long as I'm not messing with your world, you know, just let me do my thing. Yeah. yeah. So um, I c- I can't let you leave without talking about your mom,
0: because she's a big part of your story too. And obviously, when you're married to a celebrity or you know we're married to a celebrity you sort of get short shrift because so many people want to know all the details of your dad's life but yeah. um your mother was a descent you know she was the parent who spent the most time with you yeah um was a huge figure in your life and um you know she she's uh i don't know i mean what would you have done without her especially in those <laughs> early
2: days um talk a little bit about her uh well she was uh, i mean she was a caretaker you know and uh and she is by nature uh you know uh, she is she's a caretaker uh and uh so uh and i wasn't you know am an only child um so i was really close to my mom uh, and when when things got really bad with their marriage um uh, you know i really Completely identified with my mom and, and took her side, and I think I, I still would. I mean, he was he was he was a bastard, you know. Uh, and so for a long time, I would uh, I would say you know when we left, you know when we left on her.
0: Um, and you and you refer to your parents by their first names.
2: Yes, I noticed that in the book, and I
0: thought, well, that makes it easier to write because then it's not you know, dad, mom, and you know. But in real life, is it one of those things where you
2: called your parents by their first names? As long as I can remember. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and I I don't know why. Uh, I I think it must be because that's how they uh, t- taught me to refer to them. You know, you know, they didn't refer to themselves as you know, dad. Um,
0: is that some sort of like like kind of cutting edge parenting thing, or was it just that was just the way they were?
2: God, I don't know. Um, I mean, the you know. Late sixties, everything was up for grabs.
0: Right. You know, I'm not your. I'm Hunter. I'm not your dad. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean,
2: every all the rules, all the assumptions were up for grabs. So, uh, uh, who knows what they were thinking? Yeah. Um, uh, and I, you know, I would now and then try experimenting with mom or dad, but it always felt it felt weird. So
0: it's Hunter and Sandy. <laughs> yeah. And your mom, uh, what it new as new age. That might not be the right way. To put it, um, I mean I don't know. Just like you talking about your childhood, it was like dropping acid and uh, your mom with, with your mom, or at least in your mom's presence. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I did acid for the first time with uh, I was fourteen, uh, and uh, my mom and her boyfriend and a friend of mine, and uh, you know her boyfriend, me and my friend all, you know, took acid, and my mom. I drove the car and oh, so she was the straight person. Yes. She, okay. Good. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, she was, she was taking care of us and uh, and it didn't seem it didn't seem that unusual and and at that time, you know, um, uh, in that that culture, um, I was not the only one doing that. You no. Know? No. I mean, I went to I remember going to school in Colorado and
0: going to Telluride Bluegrass Festival one summer. Showing up in Town Park, with my friend, her mom walks up to us, says hello, gives each of us a handful of mushrooms. I'm from Indiana. I was like, "What in the hell's going on? <laughs> what are these?" <laughs> but just like her mom was like, "Have fun, kids," and I was like, "Okay, here we go," you know. And yeah, that's that's, that's Colorado Mountain culture. There's a lot of that up there, uh, and it, it's a, yeah, I mean, people have a good time in those ski towns and in that
2: world and i think it's i mean uh, it's it's certainly the time i mean you know it was it was that same thing it was that you know that that late 60s uh you know reject uh, reject everything you've been taught and you know uh, blow it up start over exactly make up something new uh and i think that was part of it was uh, you know uh you know drugs are bad for kids well you know just because my you know the establishment says so doesn't mean it's true um and uh you know did it do any harm uh, i don't think so um yeah I, th- I feel like
0: uh hallucinogens i mean it's nothing to play around with you want to be safe but i feel like they're the least concerning especially when you compare them to like pharmaceuticals yeah uh, yeah <laughs> you know the pills that we uh get from our uh, pharmacist and prescribed by doctors they strike right. me as a much more
2: dangerous or oxycontin yeah yeah exactly uh now uh would i uh you know did it cross my mind to uh, offer my 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 son you know LSD when steven who's 14 absolutely not <laughs> right <laughs> Well, you live in <laughs> but but uh, uh i agree i mean there there were certainly uh, uh much worse things you know uh, uh and uh it was uh i mean the, it, it, it's really weird to think that you know, I was I was pretty much through my 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 drug experimentation period by the time I was 16. You know? <laughs> it's been there, and done that. <laughs> <It's> exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's get down to some serious studying. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, but, you know, that's often the case, I feel like. And, and maybe to good effect. But it's like, you know, kids who come up in, um, you know, more permissive households where this stuff is not um, kept under lock and key or uh, painted as the end of the world. Mm hmm they sort of move through it and then they get to college and you know, cause I got to college and went wild, maybe not as wild as some people, but that happens too. You know, kids get yeah. to college and they just go berserk and they overdo it because it's serving as a kind of correction. It's yeah. like, Oh, everything I was told was bullshit. So now I'm going to blow it all up and figure it out for myself. And
2: that can be a messy process. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think there was, you know, there was a, uh, uh, there really were benefits to that to that period because just as you say you know we, you know myself my friends you know when we went to college it was uh you know there's you know getting drunk taking drugs it's like uh, i i guess you could do that but it's not as, it's not as <laughs> it's, interesting it's yeah yeah what's the big
0: deal right yeah, yeah <laughs> right um but so you and your mother um you know it wasn't always a, a perfect relationship either no, no. Yeah, no. No relationship with a parent is perfect, but, um, you know, there was a period. Wasn't there a period where she went and traveled? Am I remembering this? Yes. Like she took off.
2: Yeah. Um, so after my parents, uh, so the divorce was finalized. Uh, uh, I went to uh, to boarding school, um, and because there was no question, uh, I was ever going to live with Hunter. You know, uh, <laughs> that's, that's not. That was not I mean for a bunch of reasons, you yeah know, but uh, he was not in any way prepared to you know be a full time parent, sure, uh, and there was no way in hell I was gonna you know live with him in that crazy environment uh so I went to boarding school uh and uh my mom used her, her divorce settlement to travel the world for i think about twelve years she just uh she just you know went all over the place. Uh, and it wasn't like she would, you know, take trips and come back. I mean, she was gone. She took off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what were you thinking? Um, you know, I think it was actually, uh, it, it worked out really well. Uh, How old were you when she took off? Like you were in 16. high school? 16, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't like you were just a little kid. but no. you, were, you were still a kid. Um, I was in boarding school. Um, it was, you know, it was a, Stable environment. Um, I didn't have to deal with Hunter's craziness. I didn't have to deal with you know, uh, you know, my mom's, uh, you know, uh, nothing like Hunter. But I mean, she was uh, you know, she was really angry at Hunter and you know, going through her own stuff. So I think it was the best possible thing that I was in boarding school. They could each do their you know work out their own stuff or not, um, and I could get on with my life. Space, yes. Uh, and uh, uh, you know and I, 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 it also made it easier for me to just begin developing my own relationship with Hunter because she wasn't around um, and there was no sense of uh, you know like betrayal or competition or right uh, and uh, you know it was when I was boarding school, I would start to, start to go and see him, you know, for, a, you know, stay overnight, and, uh, we began that very slow process of trying to figure out, uh, how, how are we gonna, how are we gonna get, you know, how, how are we gonna fix, uh, not even fix this, it's like, how are we going to, it, it was really important to both of us that we have a relationship, uh, and that was sort of the first step of okay let's 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 try this and you know try to try to find find the way find the path
0: were there was there like a pivotal moment or uh, i guess there were probably many but uh little ones, but was there something that finally where you finally felt okay we've we've
2: had a breakthrough <laughs> um, there were a lot of them i mean it it, it was it was you know from the uh from those, you know, early visits, uh, you know, the first time I was up there and Hunter, uh, you know, uh, said, uh, uh, how about we clean some guns, and, you know, we'd never done it before, um, and I think that might have been, you know, a bit of, uh, you know, inspired fathering of, uh, all right, you know, we've got to have something, something that we can do here uh, together. Um, and then uh you know there was uh, there was a, a period when i uh started you know writing angry letters to her uh, and i you know type these things up and give them to him and uh he would scrawl angry notes on them you know and give them back <laughs> line redlining your letters <laughs> yes because
0: you did you did make attempts to say hey you know you uh you're an alcoholic yeah you said this to him yeah Yeah. And he... He didn't like it. He didn't like it. Because he he was... This is even like, you know, talk about strong will. Um, A guy who lived on his own terms died on his own terms. It it does make me wonder, uh, did you think he ever had any regrets? Do you ever think he looked back and said, God, I I wish I wouldn't have... Oh, yes. You think he had regrets about how much he drank and did drugs and the way that he had lived and and what it had cost him physically and mentally in his later life? Do you think he looked back? You do. Yes.
2: Yeah. I. I think he was. I think he was riddled with guilt and regrets. Uh, you know, his whole life. But. Uh, uh, I mean, that was sort of the uh, paradox. It's just a i like, I think a really. Uh, one of his traits is that he was so he was so perceptive, uh, that he could see the damage he was doing, and yet, for whatever reason, he was not able to. To to stop doing it, uh, you got to get help, and and he was not able to do that either. <laughs> well, I mean, he tried when well, he tried rehab, like what for forty eight hours once, or it was, you know, well, it, and and that was under duress. That was uh, you know uh, uh, one of the you know his, his serious relationships. The woman, the woman said, you know, I, I either go to rehab or I'm leaving. This so, was
0: was this Lynn or my, Layla Layla Layla. Yeah, that's
2: right. Uh, Lynn Nesbitt was his agent.
0: Yes. Okay. Sorry, I'm yeah. mixing it yeah, There were th- this uh, like a uh, is it a question that I wanted to bring up, uh, or a point that I wanted to bring up is that for as uh, as much of a rugged individualist as Hunter was, uh, he needed support. Yeah. And yeah. he had throughout his life uh, women yeah. in his life who nurtured him, took care of him, yeah. and then also when you think about the editorial staff at Rolling Stone. <laughs> He had a team. Yes. You know, that had, he needed help. He needed support. Yeah. And I think he knew that. Um, I think, uh, is it Deb Fuller? Mm hmm. Yeah. You you write very uh, warmly about her because, you know, not all of the women in his life, I think, um, were the same, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of their impact or in terms of your feelings about them. But she was somebody who was with him for a long time. Yeah. 24 years. And they were never uh, romantic or intimate. Right. They were just very close friends. Yes. Understood each other. And yes. she really loved him and took care of him. Yes. And without a person like that, I don't know if he makes it to was it sixty seven, sixty yep. six.
2: I I totally agree. I I I think I think I think Deb, you know, extended his life by many years uh, because she was just so so uh, just selfless, you know. And and I mean, she just really loved him, and she didn't want anything from him. You know, she didn't want money. She didn't want fame. She didn't want you know. Hang, you know, be able to tell her friend she was hanging with Hunter Thompson. She didn't care about that. She just, she just really loved him. And, um, and she sacrificed, you know, a lot. Um, and I don't think she has, you know, even now. She's, um, actually, right now she's in, uh, she came into Denver to go to, uh, my son's, uh, play. Uh, I don't think she has any regrets about doing that. And he was, he was very lucky to have her. Um, uh, yeah. But I think he would also, you know, uh, uh, she would say she was, you know, really fortunate to have, to have him in her life. And they were, I mean, it was a, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like this, this, uh, uh, you know, hidden love story in a way, you know. Yeah, that's what I. That's what I took from it. You
0: know, it's like we uh, weren't sleeping together. There was no, but it was kind of like a
2: marriage. Yes. Yeah. Like uh, I, 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 I sometimes I. I, I like tried to characterize it. it's like well, how do you describe this? Because to call to call Deb his assistant is is just grossly unfair. Right. You know? It doesn't begin to capture that the the relationship. And so I thought, well, it's probably something more like uh you know, uh uh, uh if Hunter were a, you know, a Mormon uh polygamist, uh, Deb would have been the first wife. Right. You know? <laughs> uh you know and then they're all the younger women you know the younger wives who uh you know uh you know um uh but she's she's there uh you know keeping things on track and making sure the trains run on time exactly exactly and uh you know uh, uh keeping the women in line and uh, uh you know and she's she's always there as the, the kind of the, the the foundation yeah yeah uh well i'll tell you we, we started at the top of this
0: conversation talking about how the mythology of Hunter Thompson gets in the way of how great a writer he really is. Um, at the same time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sound contradictory, he's one of the few le- like, quote unquote legends who sort of lives up to the, to the billing. Uh, a lot of times you, you start to dig into literary biography, you know, or whatever biography of, of somebody um, that you revere, and you know a lot of that can fall away. I remember re- there was an oral history done by Rolling Stone, I believe, um, in the aftermath of his death yeah. that I read. And just people telling stories. And he's a larger-than-life figure, <laughs> truly, like a truly larger-than-life figure, uh, on and off the page. Yeah, uh, I think you did him great justice in this book. I think uh, it's, your story is a story that needed to be told um, because you were a huge part of his life. And uh, I, you know, I know he would be hugely proud. So thank you so much for taking time uh, to come over here and talk to me, and uh, I wish you well. I don't know if you're going to write another book or is this a one-off? Did you get the bug? You know,
2: (laughs) I did. I did. I mean, what what I what I you know realized uh, as a result of writing this is that uh, writing really is important to me, Um, and that's something I think I'd really uh, avoided acknowledging.
0: Well, no pressure, right? Uh, well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know,
2: and who wants to be compared to, you know, Honor Thompson? You know, yeah. Um, but to uh, realize, wow, this is this is this is really important to me. Um, you know, but uh, the question is, okay, well, now what? You know, right. Right? where do I go with that? Well, welcome, <laughs> we'll to, the welcome <laughs> to the club. Welcome to the club. Thank you so much, Juan. Thank you. This has been a real pleasure.
0: All right, guys, there you go. That's Juan F. Thompson. His memoir is called Stories I Tell Myself, available now from Knopf. You can find him on the Facebook. He has an author page over there. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music and uh, along with the band Stereo Total. For more information, check out killrockstars.com. Uh, thank you to the Rolling Stones for the transitional music at the top, Sympathy for the Devil. And uh, this, of course, is Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. couple of uh, Hunter S Thompson favorites I couldn't resist Uh, don't forget that this podcast has its own official app the other people with Brad Listy app it's available wherever you get your apps it's the best way to listen to this show it's free the app is free get it on your device when you do that the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free you get the most recent 50 for free the latest episode automatically uploads to the app you can download episodes to listen to uh, while you're offline And then, if you want to get at the full archives, if you just can't get enough and you want everything, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month, you get everything. Every single episode available at your fingertips anywhere you go. Great way to support the show. Would appreciate that. If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. really enjoyed Juan's book I don't know what it is I think there's something about Hunter S. Thompson he makes me laugh makes me cry there's something very touching about him to me he moves me I don't know if do other people feel that way about him <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if like the to the casual observer if that's the first thing you would think of when you think of Hunter S. Thompson like oh he's touching he's moving but there is something about him that does that to me I think that uh, Kurt Vonnegut review gets to the heart of it. He felt a lot. He saw a lot. It was painful. He dealt with it in uh, his way and wrote some, uh, some great stuff. Please remember that Henry Adams died of a stroke and that Thomas Merton died in Bangkok after stumbling into an electrical fan while wet from a shower. That's it for now. Uh, thank you again to Juan F. Thompson. His memoir is called Stories I Tell Myself out there now from Knopf. Pick up your copy in hardcover or uh, ebook edition I think is also available. So, thanks you guys for listening. I think I'm going to close uh, since we're on the uh, Hunter S. Thompson's favorite songs uh track here i think i'm gonna close with tambourine man which and i think i've tweeted this before i cannot hear the song tambourine man without thinking of hunter it was one of his favorites i believe it was played uh, at his memorial after they launched his ashes into the sky i could be getting that wrong that's my memory of it i like the idea of that even if it's not true hopefully it is true i do know that it was uh one of his all-time favorite songs have a nice day, everybody.
1: Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In a jingle-tangle morning, I'll come following you. take me on a trip upon your magic swirling ship my senses have been stripped my hands can't feel to grip my toes too numb to step wait only for my boot heels to be wandering i'm ready to go anywhere i'm ready for to fade into my own parade cast your dance and spill my way i promise to the wonder it. hey mr tambourine man play a song for me i'm not sleepy and there is no place i'm going to hey mr tambourine man bless song for me in a jingle jangle morning i come following you Though you might hear laughing, spinning, swinging madly across the sun, it's not aimed at anyone, it's just escaping on the run, and but for the sky there are no fences facing, and if you vague traces of skipping reels of rhyme to your tambourine in time. It's just a ragged clown behind. I wouldn't pay it any mind. It's just a shadow you're seeing that he's chasing. Hey, Mr. Tambourine man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. tambourine man play a song for me In a jingle jangle morning I come following you Mr. Tamarine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tamarine Man, play a song for me. In that jingle jangle morning, I come following you.